and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by Dispatch Media and the Dispatch.com. You can come to the Dispatch.com to sign up for our free stuff or to become a paid member, which we would love. Um, we welcome everybody. We kind of think that the free stuff is a gateway drug to um, full membership. And so we encourage everybody to check it out. And while you're there, you might discover the third kind of heat. Um, Today, we don't technically have a sponsor, but I'm going to call an audible, uh, which is essentially what every one of these podcasts is anyway, and say that we are brought to you today by my friends at Signature Cigars. Uh, some of you may know that I um, spent a lot of time hanging out at, or at least I used to, at this cigar shop in Northwest Washington on Wisconsin Avenue. And, you know, they've been hit pretty hard by the pandemic, like a lot of people, and they've only just today um, restarted curbside sales. And so if you know somebody in the Washington area that likes cigars, or if you like cigars and you're in low supply, um, it'd be great if you could, uh, give them some business. They're great guys, very smart tobacconist. Um, if you call them, I don't have the number handy, but if you call Granville, um, the guy who owns the place, uh, and tell him I sent you, he'll be extra good to you. Um, so anyway, uh, where to begin? Um, well, I don't know. Let's start on the cigar shop thing for a second. You know, I, I wrote about this for National Review a few, actually a couple times. And um, one of the reasons, I like the cigar shop for a whole bunch of reasons. I've, I've made some actually pretty good friends there. Um, you, I've learned a lot of things there because of the cross-section of people who go there. Um, but one of the things I like about it is that it's, it's, it's basically the... the the most democratic thing I do, and I mean that in the sort of small d, Tocquevillian, Burkean sense, in that um, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of like JFK's PT boat, where he met mechanics and, 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 you know, workmen and all sorts of interesting different cross-sections of American life. Uh, you know, it, it's a, the, the only thing that everybody definitely has in common there is that they like cigars and to be even more granular about it, they like hanging out in a cigar shop, which even a lot of people who like cigars don't necessarily like to do. And so there are a lot of, there are a lot of, um, upscale people. There are a lot of working class people, a lot of black people, a lot of white people. Um, interestingly, not that many Asians now that I think about it, but I don't think it has anything to do negative with the cigar shop. Um, but you, you know, you hear cops talking about, you know, their work and telling you, telling you stories. And, um, you know, there are a bunch of successful sort of DC lawyer types there who it's an interesting window into all of that. And, um, there's, you know, one guy who reads audiobooks for a living, which is kind of interesting. Um, and it's just good, I think, for people, particularly in my line of work or related lines of work, to get out of whatever bubbles they're in. And you know, it's sort of like why my wife and I love driving cross-country is it's just great to be reminded about, first of all, how big this friggin' country is, how diverse it is in 
in ways that we don't talk about enough um, in the national conversation. In the national conversation, diversity basically boils down to all this stuff about race and gender and sexual orientation. And you know, look, I mean, we can have disagreements about where that conversation goes or what conclusions people are trying to like reach with that conversation. But when you actually drive across country and, or if you go to a cigar shop or like Charles Murray, when he goes to play poker in Charlestown, um, you actually just realize that, you know, there are more interesting kinds of diversity in this country. People who live in different ways, have different values, are still all basically decent people. Um, and have just different priorities. It's one of the things I like about going to Alaska, you know, to see my wife's family is just, you know, life is just different there. And the, the national conversation about diversity, sometimes it just feels like it's been dictated to us by a pretty anally retentive um, HR manager. And, you know, like I'm, I, I don't know, I'm reminded of when Bill Clinton announced that he was going to fill his, he was going to have a cabinet that looks like America. And what he meant by that is he was going to have like basically 17 left-leaning partisan lawyers um, who came in different genders and colors and all of that, but all thought exactly the same way. And um, I just find that kind of diversity, you know, there are places where that kind of diversity is needed, I think, and that's a fair argument to have. Um, needed is a little different than imposed, but that's also a different argument to have. Um, but, um, you know, the, I'm, I'm much more interested to go to a, you know, an, an all black community that lives differently than the communities I've grown up in is more interesting to me than a quote unquote diverse community, which has black and white and Asian people and all the rest but basically it is no different from, you know, the places I've already lived in. I don't learn very much from that. Um, the real diversity is, is the sort of diversity of, of communities. And that's one of the reasons why I really like federalism is, and I say this all the time to college kids, um, federalism makes this country a more interesting country to drive across. Um, if every community is just like every other community, that's just boring and it's, it's, it's unsatisfying. I like going to crazy hippie left-wing communities and seeing how they do things there and seeing how, you know, they, you know, they, they, it's a, you know, they sell stuff that to me tastes like kitty litter and put it in yogurt, whatever. That's all fine. Um, but, you know, and I like going to really conservative communities and seeing how they, you know, live. I mean, whether it's the Amish or whoever, I just, I, I want more of that in America. I want more different social ecosystems. And, you know, the founding fathers believed that, in, um, in essentials, unity, in everything else, diversity. And um, there's a plaque downtown near the White House that says that. That's why it always stuck out of my head. And, um, um, you know, this sort of gets to this, I'm not going to get into another thing about nationalism here, but this gets to my thing about, about nationalism is I just don't believe that unless you're, you know, a Marine or something, um, you don't get out of, most normal people don't get out of bed for America. They get out of bed for different, smaller, more intimate communities that they actually know the community of their family, the community of their work, the community of their local neighborhood. Um, these are the things that are more important and should be more important to people. Um, when you start 
you know, it's sort of like the Randolph Bourne argument about the health of the state. Randolph Bourne wrote this, you know, he's famous for this line that war is the health of the state. And uh, his argument gets really short shrift because it's actually a really fascinating argument. He says there are these two things. There's the state and there's the government. And in normal, peaceful times, you know, we have a government. And in a government, government is where politics happens. It's very much like Ben Sass's uh, really brilliant seven-minute riff uh, at the beginning of the um, um, Brett Kavanaugh hearings. You know, uh, government is where we hash out our disagreements. Different constituencies petition different leaders to, you know, uh, reflect their interests and serve their interests. And people compromise and, and haggle in government, and that's how it's supposed to work. And um, the only, it becomes the state only really either, um, you know, only really during times of crisis, um, whether it's a war, this is what he meant by war is the health of the state. And when it becomes a state, what he means is that all of a sudden the, the state, as opposed to the government, is now supposed to be this romantic um, sort of almost mystical representation of the whole of the nation. And that if you disagree with what the state is doing during a war, you're a traitor. Um, it's the, the, democ demo the democratic mechanisms cease to be about debate and disagreement, which is what democracy is supposed to be about. And instead, everything gives way to this sort of we're all in it together, um, no dissent kind of thing. And... Um, you know, one of my great complaints about the left is that they very much like the idea of, of a state. One of my great complaints these days about the right is that a lot of these guys now want to have this conception of the state. And again, I don't want to get into deep in the weeds on the nationalism stuff, but, you know, the point I was just trying to make is that things are going badly when, if again, if you're not like in the military, in a uniform of some kind, um, if you get out of the bed and the first thing in the, in, that pops into your head is what you're going to do for America. Because that means there is something that all 320 million Americans need to have done. And that's very rarely like a good situation. You want to have, have a country where most people, when they get up out of bed this morning, in the morning, they're like, first I got to make coffee, then I got to make sure the kids get to school, then I got to go to do my job, I got to get that report done. Um... I got to plant those flowers, whatever it is. That's what normal life is about. When you start telling everybody that they have to um, just leap out of bed into their identity as an American, you're basically effacing the real sources of meaning and identity in their lives for some grander cause. And that's true of a lot of other kinds of identity politics. I don't want to live in a country where every black person, the first thing they do is think about what is good for my race. I want to, why not, what is good for my family and all that kind of stuff. And I understand, like, particularly now with the craziness in, in Minneapolis, that there are a lot of people who are black people who are getting out of bed and they're thinking about themselves primarily as a black person. I don't, and I don't blame them. Um, but that sort of proves my point 
when you have some situation like this that forces this, this sort of broader, more abstract identity um, to the center of your being, it's because usually because bad things are happening. You know, sometimes it's because good things are happening if you're watching the Olympics or whatever. And those are the sorts, or the 4th of July, and those are the sorts of occasions that Randolph Bourne talked about when he's talking about, you know, the places where in a healthy society where usually it's government, where the state can pop up for ceremonial purposes, for holiday purposes, and that kind of stuff. But it doesn't actually force the entirety of society to galvanize and, 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 and leap to action about something. Whenever that sort of call goes forth, it's because bad things are, are happening. And um, a healthy society ha you know, reserves talk about the state and the, the Volk and the people and the nation as a whole for those times where either it's a patriotic celebration um, or a solemn moment of commemoration, like what Memorial Day is supposed to be rather than what it was at least this last week. Um, and on all other times, let the American people get back to arguing with each other and doing their stuff and, and caring about their local communities and their families and all the rest. Anyway, I don't worry. I did not, did not plan to get into all of that. Um, the G file today is a bit of a doozy. Um, some of you may recall a couple weeks ago, I talked about Julian Benda. Um, I came back to him in a big way today, and I'll get to that in a second. But the first part of the G file was just this really, I don't know if people like it or roll their eyes at it, but it was this weird insight, at least I hope it's an insight, that came to me while um, I was going to do this big, long, jokey riff about um, starting with the murder hornets. And then the, you know, a couple weeks after the murder hornet story came out, there was a story about there's an invasive giant lizard in Georgia that uh, apparently eats everything and is really dangerous. And then there was the story um, today about how um, monkeys in India literally stole samples of the coronavirus, which has a very, you know, prequel Planet of the Apes feel to it. Um, but I got distracted because I went and tried to look up when the murder hornet story started because it felt like it was so long ago. And it turned out it was like 27 days ago. And it felt like a million years ago. And, um, and that just sort of got me thinking about something, which is that when you, um, um, you know, the human brain in its natural environment evolved to deal with a pretty um, manageable menu of events in your day-to-day -day life, right? You woke up, you went to the bathroom, you, you know, you organized for a hunt for Mastodon, you scattered wheat seeds, I don't know, you did you know, the normal stuff. And your brain was kind of in neutral. And, you know, the, the kind of gossip that you did was fairly normal. You know, it was like, you gossip, did you hear about, you know, such and such caveman slept with such and such cavewoman and yada, yada, yada. And um, when there were big, exciting, major events that happened, that was usually a terrifying time. And your brain goes out of neutral into a higher gear or into reverse. You know, as I put it in the G-File, if, you know, your friend is, if your friend's face is being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, you know, your, your adrenal glands go nuts and you go into reverse or something. And 
um, it dawned on me that the just the pace of events these days is so intense and you know like drinking from a fire hose that one new controversy or scandal or whatever sort of replaces another one and almost you know you know sometimes you know as Brett Bear likes to say the news cycle is now and um in dog years or something everything is just happening a lot faster and i think part of that is because the media ecosystem which includes social media but also just traditional media and all the rest is not only nationalized for a lot of us but it's globalized and so we're just constantly being barraged with all sorts of real events that are important but we're also being barraged with what daniel borston you know he coined the term pseudo events which are, they may be important, you know, like a bunch of scholars issue a report. That's a pseudo event in the sense that it's not like bogus or illegitimate or unimportant. It can be because basically virtually everything that um, sort of celebrity gossip pages do is kind of pseudo eventy. Um, and what a lot of press release stuff is, is pseudo eventy, but it's, it's not an event in the sense that it's an exogenous happening, right? It's not something that has an element of importance and surprise to it that wasn't planned and manufactured by people. Um, and so you have this barrage of pseudo events and real events and fake controversies, which people take as events and it's just nonstop. And, so there are two things that come from this, I think, or at least this is what I, you know, speculate about. One is we are seeing it's just sort of a a um, a flattening of the peaks and the, the the highs and the lows of what events are. Right? It's that you know we only have so much bandwidth. So China's uh, screwing over of Hong Kong. Um, gets as much airtime as Trump's actually gets less airtime as Trump's morning Joe tweets and, uh, something stupid that somebody else said on Twitter, you know, gets a big spike, but the border clash between India and, and China, um, barely gets on the radar. And so they all sort of get muted into a, you know, it's sort of commodify it's sort of a commodification of events and um and that's a problem because there are some things that are obviously much more important than other things but if the conversation and the heat of media is focused on a lot of trivial stuff that by definition kind of diminishes the importance of the really important things and um I didn't write about this in the G-File, but it reminds me, I once heard a psychiatrist on NPR talk about uh, Michael Jackson and the narcissism of, uh, that comes with having essentially an entourage. And he had some technical term for it that I can't remember, but he said, you know, look, think of it this way. You got a bunch of people around the table who basically their livelihoods are um, invested in attending to your needs of celebrating you, of, of, um, of flattering you and you're Michael Jackson. And you say at the table, um, 
you know, you're all sitting around eating and you say, you know, I stubbed my toe last night and everyone is like, oh gosh, I hate that. That's so terrible. I'm so sorry. Blah, 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 blah. You're such a trooper for, you know, um, persevering and doing your moonwalk or whatever. And then somebody 20 minutes later says, oh yeah, my kid has cancer. And the people at the table respond, you know, oh, that's terrible. I'm so sorry. Is there anything we can do? But the intensity of it is sort of, is too close to equal with Michael Jackson's stubbed toe. And that's sort of what we get in this, in this sort of fire hose of, 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 you know, social media outrage every single day and new controversies to fight about and all of the rest. And it's a problem, I think, because we have, um, we're losing some of the dexterity to distinguish between the important and the trivial. The second point was that, um, you know, the way human beings, it seems to me, measure time isn't rational, right? I mean, like, we didn't evolve with calendars and clocks. Um, you know, the most timekeeping was done day, night, daytime, nighttime, that kind of thing on a daily basis and or where the sun is or that kind of thing. And, um, but on a more sort of on a deeper level, the way we measure our lives on earth, <laughs> I don't mean to sound grandiose. I'm just struggling for words. I'm pretty exhausted. Um, is through events. Like if I say to you, you know, what was the first, when, when did you have your first kiss or when did you get your first job or when did you get your first promotion or um, anything like that. You, your brain doesn't say, doesn't call up your calendar and find the date. What your brain does is it remembers the moment, it remembers the event, and then tries to contextualize it by thinking about what other things were going on in your life and then doing some rough math about how old you were. And that's one of the weird benefits of going to school until you're 18 or 21 or whatever, is that you, those years give you these huge markers. One of the most disturbing things someone told me when I first moved to Washington, I got a roommate and he was like 28. I was like 21 or 22, probably 22. And, um, and he was like, yeah, you know, you don't appreciate, this is gonna be like basically your first real summer since college where you're just working. He was like, you know, you don't appreciate how much of a punctuation mark summers are on your life um, when you first stop going to school. And he was like, you know, I always, I can remember when I did this or when I did that because of what grade I was in. And, you know, in the summers were these big markers between these momentous new chapters. And then you get out of school and it all just starts to blend together. And so he was like, I could tell you how old I was, you know, where I was or what was going on with me with pretty good specificity, you know, how old I was up until I was 22 or he went to grad school. So 24 or whatever. And then he was like, but in the last five years or so, I couldn't tell you if I was 23 or 27 or whatever, because it all just starts to melt together. And, you know, I, I feel that all the time. I like, you know, I, I have to do some real work to remember if some argument I got into with somebody was, you know, when I was 35 or 42 or anything like that. 
And so anyway, the point I was trying to make is that because the way we sort of, you know, put notches on the, um, you know, those, those, what do you call those things where you mark off, you know, uh, how many days you've been in jail on the prison wall, you know, four lines and then a line through it. The way our brains mark off those notches on the prison wall is with events. So if you wildly increase the number of events and the frequency of events, it kind of has the effect of making you feel like you've been living longer and it kind of ages you. Anyway, I thought it was interesting. I don't know if anybody else does. And uh, then I got into the Benda stuff. I, since I talked to you guys about this a couple of weeks ago here, I won't get into all the weeds of it. But the reason why I brought it up was, um, you know, and again, this is a point I made before. Um, Benda talks, I've been rereading The Treason of the Intellectuals, which was originally The Treason of the Clerks. So Benda makes a big deal in the book about how um, rulers used to be realist and realists in how they conducted their affairs. Um, they didn't try to couch statecraft in the language of morality. Um, instead, they, they let the church handle morality, and they did what was necessary. And for Benda, this was a great thing, because it kept the ideal of what is moral and right um, safe from the sort of corruption of politics. And um, let me see if I can find this line. Okay, so Benda says, leaders of states practiced realism, but did not honor it. Louis XI, uh, Charles V of Spain, Richelieu, Louis XIV, did not claim that their actions were moral. They saw morality where the gospel had showed it to them, and they did not attempt to displace it because they did not apply it. When, with them, morality was violated, but moral notions remained intact. And that is why, in spite of all their violence, they did not disturb civilization. And then he adds a bit later, humanity did evil for 2,000 years, but honored good. This contradiction was an honor to the human species and formed the rift whereby civilization slipped into the world. Um, I don't, there's lots of things one could say about that. It's pre, some overlap with suicide of the West stuff. But the point being is that in the modern era, as mass politics arrives and you get, you know, these big middle classes that are no longer deferential to monarchs and aristocrats the way they once were, um, leaders became subservient to what the masses wanted. And it wasn't just in democracies, in, in, in monarchies and dictatorships and absolute, you know, regimes as well. Um, the people basically got to decide what was in the nation's honor and then the leaders followed it, you know, and that's that line I always love to quote. Um, there go the people, I must go with them for I am their leader. Um, and I got into that because that's sort of what I've been seeing a lot these days. I, I personally find that the, um, the arguments, a lot of the arguments that we're having now basically start from the proposition that a constituency or a market niche or an audience, however you want to put it, um, that their feelings come first and then everything else flows from that. 
And so Donald Trump, he had this tweet where he says Republicans feel like they've been, quote, totally silenced um, on social media. And which is, you know, incandescently, you know, not true. I mean, Trump hasn't been silenced on social media. He hasn't been censored on social media. Um, and one of the reasons why I know that is because he keeps talking on social media about how he won't be censored. Um, the important word there, though, was feeling. You have a bunch of, you know, and I don't think that most Republicans feel like they've been totally silenced either. I think this is pandering to a very thin slice of the market that's very loud. Um, but regardless, feeling, you know, Ben Shapiro, you got a lot of mileage of the facts don't care about your feelings. Well, that's true for conservatives too. Just because there are some conservatives somewhere who feel like they're being totally silenced, um, that doesn't mean that Republicans or conservatives are being totally silenced on social media. And all around you look, it's feelings that are driving this stuff. I mean, you have Ted Cruz making what I think are arguments he has to know are silly about, you know, social media censorship and, you know, Section 230 and all of this kind of stuff. But that's what people want to hear. There's a great little back and forth between my friend Charlie Cook and Ted Cruz, and I think Charlie won decisively on all of that. But it gets you to this, you know, it's just one small example of this larger phenomenon that people don't want to hear contrary facts, or at least the people who are loudest and most asinine on Twitter don't want to hear contrary facts. And, you know, there's the relevance to Benda is that, you know, we're not, you know, we're not actually experiencing a big bout of nationalism in this country or socialism in this country, because the people who call themselves nationalists and the people who call themselves socialists can't win in politics. Um, even though, you know, you'd think that, you know, the nationalists would feel like they've won because the guy who's the president of the United States calls himself a nationalist and all that. But, you know, neither side has actually won these arguments or anything close to it. And most people, I think, um, really don't fall into either camp. They don't necessarily, they don't want some hard version, you know, they don't want Victor Orban's nationalism or, you know, they don't want post-liberal Catholic integralism or any of that kind of stuff. And I suspect that most left-wingers don't actually want real socialism either. You know, they might want, you know, a more equitable healthcare system and all of that kind of stuff. But the true believers who actually believe a lot of this, you know, fan service marketing crap, and it is, a lot of it is just crap, have an outside role on places like Twitter and on cable news and all of that kind of stuff. And I think part of the, what happens is that the spokespeople for both camps, they get an enormous amount of what feels like an enormous amount of positive feedback from their, you know, constituencies, their audiences, and they mistake that feedback and the, you know, and those audiences for the American people. And so you'll, you'll constantly hear, you know, the socialists talking about how, you know, the American people are on their side. No, they're not. You can constantly hear about how, from the nationalist types, how the American people are on their side. No, they're not. It's just that the, I don't know, 20,000 people who like their tweets are sort of on their side. It's mo and, for, uh, and even then, for a lot of those people, it's more entertainment than it is actual serious politics. 
you know, a lot of those people aren't going out and getting people to sign petitions or doing any of the stuff that Benda talked about being part of government to actually achieve socialism or nationalism. They're just hanging out on Twitter or, you know, or they're sending $5 to AOC or whatever. And it's their, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a hobby thing. It's not a serious mass movement of any kind. So we don't have the kind of nationalism or socialism that Benda was talking about. We have sort of mini versions of it all over the place. And, you know, so, I, you know, I, I'll be totally honest with you guys. The, the reason why my headspace is, is here is I've been getting just an unbelievable amount of crap from an enormous number of, again, not in absolute terms, <laughs> but in Twitter terms, um, and stupid internet argument terms, uh, talk radio terms, uh, enormous number of crap from, you know, the usual suspects, uh, Michelle Malkin and that Sean Davis doofus and, and Gorka and, you know, and, and, and the, and their friends and fans have been coming after me hammer and tongs because I said that Kaylee McEnany's um, shtick, and it is shtick, is uh, grotesque and indefensible. And I stand by that. I make no apologies for it. Um, the one thing I'm not going to start doing now is, um, you know, listening to the fans and giving and taking requests for what positions I'm going to have. Um, you know, I, I see Kaylee McEnany's appointment as press secretary and her conduct as press secretary as a symptom of most of the problems that I've got with American politics these days, I don't think she's heroic. I think that she is essentially a grifter and a former Twitter troll who put her finger in the air and figured out which way the wind was blowing. So when she was, when it got her on TV to be anti-Trump, she was anti-Trump. When it got her on TV to be pro-Trump, she was pro-Trump. When it was in her interest to condemn racist comments, she condemned them. When it wasn't in her interest, she didn't. And I've, I just know too many people in Washington who are like this. Um, and I'm just too sick of the dumb game uh, that people expect me to play, to play along. And, um, you know, and since I, I wrote a piece on Wednesday defending my position and explaining all this, I'm not going to dwell on it. But, you know, since I said that on Fox News Sunday about her, um, uh, I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, it reminds me of... I don't know how many people know this story, but, you know, I'm the one who publicly was credited, I guess, with firing Ann Coulter from National Review. And um, that all of that needs a lot of quotation marks around it because uh, I was the editor of National Review Online back then, but Ann didn't work for us. You know, we basically carried her syndicated column and she wrote a couple one-off things for us as well, but she wasn't like on staff or anything like that. And she behaved badly in that whole episode. Um, you know, and it's kind of funny because one of her complaints was that when we refused to run one of her columns, uh, she went around screaming that me and Rich Lowry were girly boys or something and that she was being censored. And, but anyway, Almost all of this happened while I was on my honeymoon and I wasn't paying much attention to it. And I come back into the teeth of this crazy controversy about Anne and blah, 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 blah. 
And Rich, who was always, Rich Lowry, who was always the boss of the place, you know, I always worked for him. I wasn't, you know, a co-editor of the actual enterprise. I was just the editor of the website. Um, you know, they made all these decisions, but it, we all agreed it should fall to me to like be the public face and explain our decision and all of that kind of stuff. And the blowback on that was amazing. Uh, I mean, it was long before Twitter, so it was hundreds or thousands of emails and dumb blog posts and people saying they were going to cancel their subscriptions. They almost never cancel their subscriptions, um, in, in part because most of the people who say they're going to cancel their subscriptions are what social scientists call liars, and they weren't subscribers in the first place. But um, the emails were amazing. You know, it was... There's this weird guy thing where dudes simultaneously will argue um, how, you know, Ann Coulter is so much tougher than you and she's so much braver than you. You're a sniveling little coward and I'm going to beat you up to defend her. <laughs> and it was like all this weird beer muscle stuff and... Um, and anyway, I got an enormous amount of similar crap from uh, Kaylee's, you know, grand defenders, and um, and it was just it's just sort there's a there's a, some weird psychosexual thing for some people in all of this that I just I think is kind of funny, and um, so anyway, how would I get on that? Um, okay, so I'm just getting all you know I'm getting all this crazy abuse from people. Um, and, you know, I, as Kevin Williamson likes to say, I deserve better enemies. Um, you know, I shouldn't engage with people like Michelle Malkin or give a rat's ass about, you know, goons like Seb Gorka or, or that Sean Davis guy. Um, and I, you know, at the end of the day, I really don't, but, um, it is exhausting at times and you just sort of like, why am I even on Twitter? And, um, but so anyway, that's sort of what it's in my head is because so many of the people who are performatively doing this are doing it performatively. They're doing it because um, we're supposed to, you know, uh, turn her, you know, Kaylee into this new McEnany. I'm, I'm not trying to be sexist by just using her first name. I just never feel like I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. Um, you know, that she's the new Joan of Arc and she's the new sort of... Uh, symbol of our culture war struggle against the deep state and the, the fake news and all of this nonsense. And, um, and so it's sort of an act of treason to criticize her. But I, I should say, uh, that's what I was going to say before, you know, uh, I stand by what I said about her, but then a few days later, you know, when the Joe Scarborough, uh, tweet meltdown happened, um, I kind of feel like I went easy on her because, you know, by now you know the story. Joe, Joe Scarborough had a staffer. My understanding is she was not an intern. The intern thing was part, I believe, I could be, I'm open to correction on this. It was part, it came up in part because it was the time where the Monica Lewinsky stuff was still fresh in people's memory and the Chandra Levy stuff was a, a sort of a live thing. And it just made it sound more salacious if it was sex with an intern and that was the insinuation. But my understanding is she was a staffer and a Republican staffer, by the way. <laughs> and, you know, she had a heart condition and she tragically fainted and hit her head and died. And Trump 
because he's a goon who just takes the nearest weapon to hand to beat up people. Um, and I think the Wall Street Journal is exactly right. He's using the exact same techniques that all the Trump defenders said was so evil in the Steele dossier. And he's going to Twitter and he's just floating just scandalously gross innuendo, even though the guy's, even though the woman's, you know, surviving husband publicly in a pretty moving letter begged him to stop. And, you know, if you read that letter and then you watch Kaylee McEnany be asked about it in that press conference and the response is, well, our hearts certainly go out to the family, but, and then do this stuff to keep the story alive. That's grotesque. That's truly indefensible. That's, you know, that's like Tony Soprano talking about how bad he feels for somebody's family when, you know, he's part of the reason why, you know, the, the family lost the dad or something like that. It is, it is so smarmy and it is, it is not clever on the merits. It is only clever because so many people pretend that it's clever and they give you this, you know, lots of, it was like the Michael Jackson thing, right? If Michael Jackson tells a dumb joke and everybody falls over laughing, you can forgive Michael Jackson for thinking he's really funny, but that doesn't mean his joke was good. And just because all of these jabbering bandersnatches think that what she's doing to the media is so clever in turning the tables and all of this kind of stuff doesn't mean that it's moral or ethical or even halfway decent. And you know, so I, anyway, I stand by all of that stuff. But I, I do think, you know, on a broader level, getting back to the feelings thing, we, we live in this weird time where um, if people feel a certain way, it must be, that, that has to be the new truth. And that's sort of Benda's point, is that passions um, become self-justifying. I had this really interesting conversation with this guy, Joseph Uzinski, um, who's an expert on conspiracy theories and how they work in American politics. And, um, you know, he was talking about how much blowback he gets when he says that theories that the 1% really control the government are conspiracy theories. And, you know, and I'll, you should really listen to the podcast. It was really interesting. I think he's exactly right. I think it's a vestigial thing. I don't know if it's vestigial from Marxism, but it has a lot of the same anatomical features of Marxism. A lot of Marxism boils down to one grand conspiracy theory about how economies work. And it's all over the place. And I, I no longer think that Marx is responsible for all of it. I think it's something that comes from the structure of the human brain that causes us to invent these kinds of theories. And so since that is the human brain is the same as it's always been in different eras, these kinds of theories get different names like Marxism or whatever. But it's not that Marx permanently put this into our heads. It's that it's permanently in our heads and in different eras we come up with different ideological super or marketing superstructures for how to express these things. Um, but people get really angry when you say that the 1% thing is a conspiracy theory because they think it's fact. They think it's real. And it boils down to the 
to the fact that it's actually a feeling. It's just a feeling. Most of the conspiracy theory stuff is driven by feelings, not by facts. The feelings come first. It's sort of like uh, the David Hume thing about, you know, uh, reason is a slave to the passions. We start with the feeling and then we go hunting and pecking, looking for facts that we can string together, whether they're connected or not, to support the feeling. That's how we get conspiracy theories. That's how we get a lot of things in politics. And we're living in one of these moments. And so I don't, I, it's interesting that a lot of people suddenly feel like America was founded in 1619. But spoiler alert, it wasn't. It wasn't remotely founded in 1619. Slavery didn't even really start in North America in 1619. There's nothing, nothing true to any of that. But it's a narrative strung together with selectively used facts that supports a feeling. Same thing with like the, you know, America did not fight the Revolutionary War to protect slavery, but it helps bolster this feeling. You know, you can feel like you're a woman. That doesn't make you one according to a scientific textbook. Now, that doesn't mean that we should treat people who feel, you know, if a man feels like he's a woman or she's a woman, that doesn't mean we have to be cruel to them. It doesn't mean we shouldn't let them live the life that they want to live. Those are completely different things. But you know, where I, at least where I would draw a line is we, we can't sort of retcon biology and medical school textbooks um, to bend to the, this, this theory of feelings um, and, not, and just sort of give up on the idea that there's something outside of us that is an external truth. And, but that's the sort of the, the time that we're living in. And then, all right, so, but enough, I mean, I want you guys to actually read the G file, so I'll stop talking about all that stuff. Um, the last thing I, um, want to talk about are idiots and I don't mean the people who are attacking me, although their numbers are, um, uh, their ranks are full of their, of, of, of idiots as well. Um, I did this interesting panel for AI by, via zoom or some other thing, uh, the other day, you can get, get it at the AI website. It's about um, it was pegged to the release of this book by the Fordham Institute. Um, and I believe also Hoover, I don't want to get that wrong, um, on how to educate an American. And there's a bunch of really great chapters in there. And there's also mine. I don't know how great it is. Um, I picked up largely from a theme from that was in Suicide of the West. And, but so we had this interesting panel discussion about how do you teach to, you know, how do you educate, how should we be educating Americans? And the focus in particular was on stuff like, how do you teach a patriotic version of American history that is accurate, that is not propagandistic, um, but at the same time, you know, teaches people how to um, appreciate you know, what is so great about America and in its proper context. And then, you know, and I've riffed about this before, but my, my basic take, which is part of my essay is that, um, you have to want to teach, you know, all the bad stuff. Um, it's important to teach the bad stuff. The problem I have is with the sort of Howard Zinn version of these things where we let the bad stuff not only define us, 
but permanently define us. You know, the evils of the American past never get smaller in the rearview mirror. Um, that's sort of the point of the 1619 Project. It, it's, it's basically an original sin narrative masquerading as history. That, you know, because slaves are brought here, what, 150, 60 years before the founding of America, that therefore is the real founding. That's the original sin, the real founding of America. Um, and the reason why I want to teach the bad stuff is you can't talk about the good stuff unless you teach the bad stuff. You can't teach about how, you know, there's been enormous progress in this country. You can't teach of how basically in this almost in a deist fashion, the American founding set up an intellectual, you know, superstructure that allowed us to become a more perfect union. And, you know, so the example I often use is about hypocrisy. Uh, the American, you know, America was founded on, um, unlike every, any other country before it, was founded on really lofty sort of Julian Benda-like principles and ideals. And, you know, the, the beginning of the declaration, you know, we hold these true stuff. And I, God, I feel like I've talked about this like 10 times on here. Anyway, um, so there was something, you, you know, yes, yeah, so slavery was evil. But, and we need to talk about how it's evil. We also need to explain what slavery was, why other countries had it. We have to explain that also what's remarkable about us is that we got rid of it. There are all sorts of contextual things about slavery that are, that are really important, even though we should never lose sight of the fact that it's evil. And it's particularly evil in the sense that America had it because unlike, you know, Spain, which is founded on some primordial mythic nationalism stuff, right? The Spanish people, whatever, or the French, you know, who I believe every school child, at least up until recently, has to begin school with some, you know, refrain about our forefathers, the Gauls, or something like that. You know, we were, we were founded in a different way. And the way we were founded was that, you know, our Declaration of Independence said, you know, that all men are created equal and that they have inalienable rights. And so when we have slavery, we contradict the essence of why our country was founded in ways that, you know, Spaniards or Russians don't. And because the Spaniards and the Russians were, you know, just about what is good for our tribe kind of thing. We set a higher bar. But the beautiful thing about hypocrisy is that you can't be a hypocrite unless you have a principle, right? You, can't, you, have, you, have, you have to fall short of an ideal. Um, the only way you can fall short of an ideal is if you have an ideal. And that's what hypocrisy is. And so you have this, you know, um, often painful, but ultimately inspiring story about how these principles that, like a time bomb, the founders laid down that over time got worked out, that the, the inherent contradiction between a country that brags about how it was founded on inalienable rights but doesn't actually apply them was the means by which we improved ourselves as we tried to reconcile those contradictions. And so you have, you know, you have the, from the Declaration, you, then you have the Gettysburg Address where Abraham Lincoln says, you know, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers came forth on this continent to, you know, uh, give a new birth to freedom or whatever. I can't remember the exact part of it is. And, and he basically reconsecrated who Amer what America is 
by by making those ideas, the preamble, the beginning of the Declaration of Independence now became central to who we are rather than just, you know, marketing. And then 100 years after that, you have Martin Luther King appealing to white America. I hate the term, but he was appealing to white Americans, not with violence, right? Not with, you know, threats, but not with a vow about the fire next time or anything like that, but with an appeal to their conscience. And specifically, he said, you know, the founding fathers signed a promissory note that all men, you know, and women are created equal in the eyes of God and therefore government and all that. And then he says, we've come to collect. And so what he was doing was he was appealing to Americans to the best version of themselves and saying, you're falling short. And that's what, that's what moral politics is supposed to be about, is about how you take people you show them what their ideals are supposed to be, and you say, here's how we're falling short of them, and here's how we can close the gap. We will never fully realize our ideals because the whole point of an ideal is it's always going to be a little further away from your grasp. And that's a good story to tell. That includes the evil, includes the bad, and all of those kinds of things, but it puts them in the proper context. And so anyway, I, during the panel, I, I remembered there's this... Um, um, great essay uh, by John Courtney Murray. I think it's called, I think I called it, uh, hold on. Yeah, it's called The Return to Tribalism. And he has, this, he has this great line in there, which I quoted, you know, from memory, where he says, you know, look, I think the, you wrote it in 1961, you know, which is a pretty fraught time in the Cold War. And he says, you know, I think the, the, the real barbarians at our gates aren't communists, but idiots. And, you know, and, you know, he was not, John Courtney Murray was not exactly a, you know, Twitter troll. He meant something specific by it. Um, so he said, I'm reading here, I suggest that the real enemy within the gates of the city is not the communist, but the idiot. And what he meant by idiot was not the sort of vernacular usage of it, which means, you know, moron, um, what used to say retarded, that kind of thing. Um, but he was hearkening back to the primitive Greek and in ancient Greeks, the, the, the idiot wasn't necessarily dumb at all, but he was the person who did not possess the public philosophy. He was the man who was not master of the knowledge and skills that underlie the life of the civilized city. The idiot to the Greek was just one stage removed from the barbarian. He is the man who is ignorant of the meaning of the word, civility. Um, and so like, it's funny, idiot, there are a bunch of words that have the sort of same root, like idiom and idiosyncratic. It means basically, it implies in the, in the ancient Greek for the idiot, it means private, selfish, not interested in the public good. And um, now I should say up front, I you know, go back and listen to the stuff I said at the beginning of this thing. I don't want people getting out of bed every day to, um, sorry, it's starting to rain. So if that sounds weird to you guys, I apologize. Um, I don't want people getting out of, every, getting in bed, out of bed every day saying, what am I going to do for the public good of the United States of America? But I do want them to know what the public good is. I want them to know like what the constitution says. I want them to know what decent and moral 
behavior is, what it means to be a good citizen, whether it's of your local community or of the country. And um, you look around today, there are a lot of smart people out there who are pretending that they don't know what the Constitution says. They don't know what, um, you know, they're pretending that, that, that the traditional notions of civility and decency don't longer, no longer apply. Um, they're pretending not to know better. And that's one group of idiots. And then there's another group of idiots, again, using the sort of vernacular thing. Um, I mean, not the vernacular thing, the Greek thing. Um, who really just don't know anything about this country. I mean, if you want to start cutting yourself, go back and look at the polls that show, you know, or the surveys that show how ill-informed Americans are about, you know, the country, about who's the president or the vice president or the members of the, I suspect everybody knows who the president is, but um, they don't necessarily know what his powers are. Um, they don't know what separations of powers means. They don't know what the Supreme Court really does. Um, you know, the people who think that Eisenhower fought in the Civil War. And um, a lot of them there, and they're not all idiots in the, in the common usage of it either. Uh, a lot of smart people just don't care about any of this kind of stuff. The danger is um, that if you don't know any of this, you know, if you don't know the basics, then you actually don't know what is possible and not possible within our system. You don't know how things are supposed to work. You don't know that in the Randolph-Born sense about how the government is supposed to work, about the messy process of making legislation. I think this is one of the big problems that we have with Donald Trump these days, is he honestly has no idea what powers he has. And there are good things that come with that and bad things about that. But, you know, he says he has total authority to do whatever he wants, but he's not going to use it. You know, he, he, he thinks that he can close down Twitter um, if he wants to. He can't. There are all these things that he thinks he can do, but he can't, or at least he wants people to think that he can do them. And that's a, it's a problem. And it's very similar to the, you know, the problem you get with the Bernie Sanders types who tell us in election after election that all of the good people, all of the real Americans are on our side and that we're all ruled by the 1%. And if we don't win an election or if we don't get the policies we want, it's because we were blocked by sinister evil forces that were holding back good things. And so the, the, the kind of dangerous kind of populist cynicism you get is that when people start believing that stuff, um, they start thinking, okay, we just need the power and then we can do whatever we want. And if we're, if we're stymied, it must be, it can't be because people of goodwill who disagree with us, you know, didn't vote our way. It has to be because they were manipulated by the globalists or the deep state or whatever. And if you actually just have basic knowledge about how the system actually works, about how you need 60 votes to get things past a filibuster, that you know that the Supreme Court is supposed to um, overturn popular legislation if it violates individual rights, that the Supreme Court is not supposed to be democratically accountable that way. It is supposed, you know, the people who love democracy always seem to forget that the, some of the things they love 
the most about living in a liberal democracy are um, the non-democratic things. You know, I mean, I love the Bill of Rights because it takes some things and says these cannot be changed or gotten rid of simply with one election. They can be gotten rid of through elections, but it's going to take a long time and a lot of work. And I want it to make, take a long time and a lot of work to get rid of things like the First Amendment or the Fifth Amendment, you know, or the Fourteenth Amendment. And the uh, 17th Amendment, I would like to get rid of easily, but I have to take the bad with the good. And so it's sort of like, you know, when you have, I know I keep using like these garden metaphors and all this kind of stuff, but when you have a rich ecosystem with lots of grasses and plants and trees and all that kind of stuff, it holds the soil in place. And... Um, when you have this kind of the, the mass ignorance of this kind of idiocy, speaking in the John Courtney Murray sense, you basically have the capacity for, you know, it's, it's, it's like you're denuding the landscape of all of these plants, all these things with roots that hold the soil in place. You're getting rid of them, and all it takes is one big gust of wind to blow all the soil one way or another way. If you don't, I mean, again, these are all mixed metaphors, I know, but if you don't have the ballast in you to keep you steady in a storm, um, and the ballast being, you know, basic knowledge about basic things about how the government works, how politics works, what kind of country we are, um, what it means to have good character, if you don't have all that stuff holding you down all it takes is one demagogue to come along and say, the reason why you don't have the things that you want to have is because somebody is preventing you from having them. Evil forces are preventing you from having them. And that's a dangerous, that is a dangerous precondition for all sorts of things. And that's why I think, you know, teaching people, like, and I don't want to be propagandistic about American history. I just don't want people to be idiots. I want people to be part of public common life where appropriate with the basic knowledge that equips them to be able to hear a Bernie Sanders or a Donald Trump or an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or a Huey Long or a Father Coughlin, go down a very long list, be able to listen to these people and, and see that they're selling you snake oil. See that what they're really trying to do is just get power. And that kind of brings me back to the Benda thing is that the, the treason of the intellectuals that he's talking about is that the, the intellectuals, clerks is the original term, um, is that they stopped trying to educate, you know, the people about right and wrong and all of these things. And instead they embraced what he called Nietzschean pragmatism, um, or the, uh, um, the divination of realism, which just simply says we should now make a moral, future, moral, moral virtue of power, of what we want, right? You know, when Donald Trump goes around saying how um, we're suckers and how we should just be greedy for what's best for America in all cases and that, um, you know, whatever, it's about trade deals or NATO or all of these kinds of things, and or when he talks about Mike Pompeo, that he would rather have Mike Pompeo on the phone with a foreign leader than having to do the dishes when his wife isn't around. You know, it's this sort of owning up to 
the 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 sort of not owning up to the sort of the raw naked sort of reduce everything down to transactional power and then glorifying in it and um and it's one thing for politicians to do that if i've learned at a deep level you know one thing in the last few years is is, is that russell kirk was right about how politicians will disappoint you um but if you're supposed to hold up to some sort of eternal idea of truth christian truth moral truth philosophical truth, scientific truth, whatever kind of truth you want to talk about, you need to believe that it's universally applicable to a certain extent. Um, you certainly need to believe that it's true regardless of how you feel about it. And so many of the people who are just raining crap on me these days don't care about the truth. And um, they're just basically doing fan service um, feeding people's feelings, stoking their anger, um, trying to monetize it or get more hits on TV or whatever. And it's put me in a kind of a foul mood, not because I take any of this stuff personally, you know, this, despite several thousand tweets, um, in the recent days, I, I knew already that I was overweight. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I lost a bunch of weight a few years ago and I've, I've found most of it again, which is, you know, kind of touching. But uh, it's just a drag having to deal with a lot of these people. And since this is my podcast and I'll do what I want, um, I figured I would vent a little bit about it. Um, but one last serious point, um, you know, the, and as I mentioned this in the G file, all these people telling me about how I'm not relevant anymore and nobody cares and Seb Gorka had something about how nobody respects me um, and all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I don't take it to heart, you know. I, I actually don't want to hang out with people who take Seb Gorka very seriously, never mind some of these other people. I, if, if you're outraged by, you know, Michelle Malkin, who's um, a passionate defender of these Holocaust-denying racist punks, um, is not outraged by Holocaust denial, but she is outraged that I criticized Kaylee McEnany. I'm glad to be on the other side of that divide. Um, I wish more people were with me, but that sort of gets me to my point. All these people are doing fan service for a very small niche of actual America. You go out into actual America and talk to normal people. They don't know who the Groypers are. They don't give a rat's ass about who I am or about who you know, any of these other people are, they don't know what the Federalist is. They don't know, you know, it's, they, they don't care. And that's probably healthy. That's fine. They certainly don't know what the dispatch is. That's fine too. I mean, I, I'm hoping to change that. But, you know, what I'm not claiming to do, I mean, this is my whole shtick here these days. And I shouldn't say shtick because I mean it sincerely and kind of passionately and I paid a big price for it. My whole thing is that I know I'm a member of a remnant right now. That's the name of the freaking podcast. And I just, you know, me and David and Steve and Sarah and the rest of us, we, I'm not trying to be too like self-righteous because there are a lot of great places that are still around. I still have enormous respect for, you know, commentary and my friends at National Review. Not everybody who writes for National Review, but you know, the, the gang, I, I, I love them. And, you know, National Affairs does great. All, there are lots of places that do great stuff. 
but we started the dispatch in part because we wanted to model the behavior that we felt was sort of lacking out there in the broader swamps of sort of right-wing shouting. And um, we know that we are appealing to a niche of the market too. We're just not pretending that it is the grand, you know, you know, mass movement that speaks for all true Americans the way these other guys do. We're just trying to tell the truth as we see it. We think that there are a bunch of people out there more than enough to make us a really thriving, successful business um, who agree with us in broad brushstrokes. You know, you read the comment sections, lots of people disagree with me, which is great. That's fine. Lots of people disagree with each other. I wish everybody were, you know, stayed civil and polite to each other. And for the most part they have, but it's, it, I worry that sometimes some, there are some bad apples that are ruining the experience for other people. Um, but that's what we believe in. We believe in argument and disagreement and debate. I, you know, I disagree with my colleagues all the time about all sorts of stuff. I, you know, I'd be happy to go to my grave without ever hearing about Spanish wine again. Um, but we just, we know that we're sort of in a remnant. We, you know, as David likes to say, a remnant in biblical sense has a, you know, is a special connotation. It means both sort of something that's left behind but it's also the thing that you get to build back up from. And um, I'm super grateful to the, the people who are sort of, who've been getting my back in all of this. Um, it's, you know, I thank you for the well-wishing and all that kind of stuff. I'll be fine. Um, you know, one of the things that's fun about, or that's nice about these kind of crappy periods is that you kind of learn um, who's a mensch and who's not. You know, and uh, that's always good to know. Um, but we just think there are more people out there who understand what I'm getting at and, you know, want to be part of what we're trying to do. And if, if that's you and you can be part of what we're trying to do, great. If you just want to sort of, you know, watch from afar and go about the rest of your life and your, your business, which is totally understandable, particularly during these crazy times, that's fine too. Um, but... You know, if you expect me to sort of just sort of drop everything and, you know, either sw switch teams and become a leftist or something, I'm not going to do that. And I'm also not going to go out there and um, tell everybody that the stuff that Donald Trump tweets or that um, Kaylee McEnany says to defend it is Shinola because it ain't Shinola. So anyway, uh, thanks for listening. I know this was rambling. Um I hope I didn't say anything too weird or stupid. I kind of feel like I did. Um, but, uh, you know, that's what you get when you ask me to do these things. So I will see you next time. Thanks very much. Sure.